0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number thirteen of our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth, and today we start to get to some genuinely miscellaneous material. Which I don't know about you, but this is kind of uh, like what I came for. So I just realized I'm not wearing my glasses. And get a headache before the end of class. Um, yeah, this is this is the kind of content that I would I've been waiting for. I mean, look, I've loved this whole book so far um and you know i've tried to share with you guys how much i have liked um all of his mathematical calculations and stuff in the early part and we talked about that a little bit more last time but um You know, does Prince Imrahil have a beard? Like, this is what I'm here for. (laughs) Okay, that's not quite true. But uh, there's some... um, There's (laughs) Right, Tarloniel says you're not here for the long division? I don't know. I don't know, Tarloniel. But I have to admit, as much as I enjoy math, long division isn't quite my thing. (laughs) It's not quite. I don't know if Tolkien would be terribly disappointed. But again, I still say, if he had lived to see spreadsheets... I think he might enjoy spreadsheets as much as I do. That's what I really, uh, that's what I, when, when I'm doing math for fun, um, I, uh, I'm doing, I'm doing spreadsheets. But anyway, um, before we get started though tonight on our, our, our sundry matters, uh, that we're going to be discussing here in this, uh, uh, first half of part two, um, I want to share with you something kind of awesome, uh, that I think many, most of you probably, uh, in fact, Probably all of you will never have seen because this is quite a new thing that we are doing in the Mythgard Institute. So let me let me let me share this with you. Let me let me show you what's going on here. Okay, where did it go? That's just not it. Here it is. Okay, there we are. Um, here's the Mythgard Institute homepage, right? And. Um, all this is like pretty much as normal, except for this new thing, which is the Mythgard Miscellany. You can see it here on the homepage. You can see it up here in the menu. Um, if you click on Mythgard Miscellany, you will see um, we are making uh, an initiative here at Mythgard to be broader and more inclusive in what we do. Um, you know, Mythgard kind—you of, know—it kind of grew out of my podcast and. Um, for, for a lot of times, you know, many people have approached me over the years and say, you know, I really enjoy all of your Mythgard content, but as much as I like Tolkien, it would be kind of interesting to also talk about things that are not necessarily just Tolkien. Um, and also, I've had other people say even more politely and charmingly, I really enjoy your classes, but it might be kind of fun to how do I say this? Hear from somebody who isn't you sometimes, <laughs> right? At which I, Both of which I totally get. Like, I absolutely get that, um, uh, because I, you know, this is, I, I've never intended this to be a kind of monopoly. There's a very good reason though, um, why I have, it's mostly been me, uh, and it's mostly been talking stuff on Mythgard broadga- broadcasts so far. And, uh, um, the uh, and the primary answer is that um, I'm the only one who will broadcast this much for free. <laughs> At least I'm the only one that that I have the guts to ask uh, to do this much broadcasting for free. Um, uh, so that's that's kind of that's kind of my answer uh, to uh, uh, to that. Um, but anyway, we, we we have wanted for a long time uh, to do this. So what we've done is we've created the Mythgard Miscellany. And What the Mythgard Miscellany is is one way to think of it is essentially a publication um, avenue for stuff, all kinds of stuff. Um, We want this to be, you know, we're not just like starting a journal or something like that. Um, We want um, Mythgard Miscellany to be a place where cool people with interesting things to say uh, can say things, hold discussions, um, post videos. Um, There's all kinds of uh, content that we would really enjoy curating. It is going to be curated. It's not just like a anybody can post kind of situation. Um, You know, it is going to kind of go through an editorial process. But that's part of the uh, part of the advantage here. Um, For instance, one of the things that I am most excited about with the Mythgard Miscellany, it's going to provide an opportunity. It's going to provide an outlet, a, a venue where stuff can get published, can get kind of circulated, which so often just kind of dies or fades away. One common example of this, conference papers, right? I cannot tell you how many times over the last, you know, seven years or whatever, it's been longer that we've been doing MythMoot. My goodness. um, Yeah, it is MythMoot 9 this year, isn't it? But anyway, um, over the last nine years, since we've been doing our moots at Signum, when I hear a brilliant presentation, right, that I would love to share. And I'm like, oh, man, like, I bet you a lot of people would love to hear this. This was so cool. And but like, then what do we do? Where does it go? You know and there's of course it's always possible to take a a really good conference paper and and brush it up and submit it to a journal for a publication um or something else, but that's um that's not uh That's not for everybody, and that's not necessarily uh, a viable even venue for some presentations, which might be particularly visual or maybe even a creative performance of some kind. Uh, Like, for instance, uh, it immediately leaps into my mind uh, the wonderful musical adaptation that we heard of the Baron and Luthien song um, at uh, SoCal Moot. Uh, back the the last moot uh, before the pandemic, um, right before the pandemic in February 2019. Um, so anyway, that, that it's going to be stuff like that. That would be really cool. It'd be really awesome to be able to share that with more people and, uh, you know, just for more people to be able to kind of enjoy all these cool things that, you know, I've gotten to see at various events and conferences that we go to, but even with our hybrid conference now, yeah, lots of more people can sign up and participate digitally and that's cool and more inclusive, But, but we can do even better, right? We can do even better. We would love to showcase all the awesome work out there and not only work in the sense of like a presentation or a performance or something like that, like that's cool, but even discussions, right we would we want to have more to display what do people want to talk about um, so there's a lot of potential for stuff like this so again, if you go to the Mythgard miscellany page, here's what you'll see so there's a little explanation we're gonna be doing a Mythgard movie club discussion on the wheel of time adaptation, which by the way, I loved I thought it was brilliant. I didn't love one hundred percent of everything about it, but I thought it was a brilliant adaptation big Robert Jordan fan myself um, anyway, so I uh, but but here's here's what you do um there are two sort of uh options here um we want to get submissions from the community and like we don't care what it is <laughs> we don't care what it is like did you like do something, make something, write something uh, again, like art, cosplay, music, film, paper. Um, you know, a, a, a cake interpretation of the Goblet of Fire, as they say, like all kinds of things, right? Whatever you have that you think is cool, that you would want to share, share it with us, right? And uh, and you know, and we encourage folks, especially folks who do, um, uh, uh, who do um, uh, a, um, uh, you know, as I say conference presentations it's kind of a no-brainer right um you went to all this work and you you got this presentation together and it was really good like submit it you know it'd be, it'd be cool so anyway this is going to be really really um um this is going to be really really fun i think and we're going to also have other uh you know panels and presentations uh by experts at at, at myth guards i mean we're hoping to bring in you know a bunch of people to talk about more stuff and everything um we're open to lots and lots of, uh, lots and lots of topics here. So anyway, we hope that, uh, people will submit. So here's the, there, there's the link right here. Submit your work now. Um, if you've maybe, you, you know, many of you, I know many of you who are attending this have done conference presentations, conference papers before you could submit it in print form. You could, um, you could do, you know, an audio performance of it. Um, but, um, anyway, there's, um, There's all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of things, uh, that you can do. So, um, anyway. Just wanted to make sure that you guys were aware of that. I think this is going to be a really fun thing. Um, you know, we'll see. the the This is a this is a brand new initiative, so you know, we'll, we'll see how the the rollout goes. But of course, a lot of that is going to depend upon how many submissions we get. Um, so, of course, we're really eager to see as many submissions as possible uh, at the beginning, and we'll we'll sort through and we'll discuss things with folks, and uh, and we'll see what happens. Like I said, this is going to be this is going to be a curated collection. You know, being accepted to the Mythgard Miscellany is going to be it's going to be like a, a, a kind of publication. I mean, there's there's going to be a sort of peer review process there. Um, but it's not you know, what we're looking to do is much more broad in its interest level. Um, this is not just about publishing scholarly articles. This is about all kinds of like celebrating the great stuff, all of the talent, all of the, uh, the smarts, all of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the enthusiasm that you guys have out there in the community, because this has been, uh, something that I think is really, uh, is really cool, is really, is really important, um, um. Steven says, how about a, a twitch stream or YouTube channel examining uh video game stories that would be a thing that you could do, sure, sure um yes, yeah, Cecilia, you could do your uh audio play of the Athrobeth and post it there that absolutely you could do that um uh so yeah, anyway, so that's um uh lots of lots of opportunities here for um uh for stuff to stuff to do, but I wanted to draw that to your attention because I think this is gonna be an awesome awesome initiative and uh, we'll see where it goes i may remind you about this uh from time to time but i would um uh definitely commend this to your attention uh as you look through what's going on here so all right that is um the new thing that i wanted to share with you guys today and there may be more new things to share with you guys in the future um let me just say, I think that 2022 is going to be an exciting year uh, in the Signum University calendar. So uh, I am uh, very excited uh, about what is uh, stuff, more awesome stuff that is coming up. Um, All right. Let us jump back into the text, back into part two here. Um, We had gotten up to... um, elf children counting on their fingers was right we were ending we we were ending with my mind being blown um by elves writing in two different directions and with mirrored letters and stuff um which i find pretty amazing um but uh i have to admit i never even occurred to me this is probably just because i'm so like very right-handed right but uh i um uh it never even occurred to me the right-handed bias of the tengwar as printed. Um, but of course, Tolkien's very right about that, and it's interesting to see him thinking about that uh, in these, uh, in these, in these later writings. Um, we go. Heather, yes. Welcome, Heather. Glad that you could make it. And yes, you're just in time for the beards, Uh chapter I've been pumped about ever since the first time I picked up this book and looked at the chapter titles. I have to admit, Heather, that one jumped out at me, too. I, I, I definitely I've been holding myself back, though, and I've been trying not to read ahead uh, of our discussions too much. Uh, so but I was excited uh, to get to it here, too. All right. Um, Here's the there's several things that were kind of fun about the uh, elf children counting on their fingers material. Um, But this is one of the things that was really striking to me. Um, Of course, we've been looking at um, all the mathematical systems. Right. And the and the way in which he was balancing his mathematical calculations and his worldview stuff. But so look at this in the primitive days before the great journey. While the building up of the common Eldoran language was in the making, play with the hands and the naming of the fingers went together with the naming of the numerals, those above two, The hand was the primitive counting instrument. In the first stage, one hand was used as a group unit, and names were devised for its separate prominences. Later, both hands were laid out with the tips of the thumbs touching. Okay, uh, so... This raises the question that I've had in my head all along, and I know a couple of you had it too, this question of why are the elves counting in 12s? Why do they count in 12s? Um, Did they have six fingers on each hand, right? Um, I mean, it's a sensible question to be, I mean, there's a a fairly obvious reason why base 10 has been pretty popular among humans uh, over the course of history. and uh, and again, I know this is, I remember a couple of you making comments about that uh, when we were talking about how the elves tended to count in twelves. Um, and, you know, that, that whole concept of the importance of twelves uh, to the Eldar um, seems to have emerged, you know, from this period. And then, of course... It was the very first thing I was thinking of when I got to this chapter on how important hands and hand gestures and fingers and things were to them. I was like, dude, hang on a second. What? Tell me again why they count in 12s, right? If the fingers are so important. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it, so here's, so he addresses it, right? I was delighted to see him explicitly address this question. Much later, but before the end of the Common Eldarin period, The Eldar, leaving behind the primitive beginnings with the hand, devised a counting in sixes and twelves, which they used in all more elaborate reckonings. But in daily and colloquial use, many of the decimal terms remained in use. Okay, so they deliberately devised the countings in sixes and twelves. They got to that. Not through any kind of biological accident. I mean, it would have been easy enough to be like, oh, yeah, didn't I mention that elves have six fingers on each hand? Totally true, right? He could, he could have done something like that if he'd wanted to, um, but he doesn't. Um, he doesn't do that, right? Instead, he says, oh, yeah, no, they started with base 10. They totally started with base 10, but then they left that behind on purpose, right they knowingly deviated from the system that was natural naturally devised from their original counting tools um uh you know their their fingers right um which again like he emphasizes how the names of the fingers themselves are tied to the numbers right like this whole process of like identifying your hands uh, and counting, like the numerals of counting, are extremely closely... I mean, this is a much, much... He, um, so on the one hand, he links the numbers, the first ten numbers anyway, right, uh, much more intimately with the fingers of the hands, much more explicitly than we do, right? Um, I mean, I... Uh, um, uh, I... I'm basically, um, it took me a long time. I mean, I don't remember how old I was, but it took me a long time to figure out like, or to kind of come to that realization. I think you know, most people come to that realization at one point or another, right? Like, oh, yeah, that's why we count in tens. Makes sense, right? We got ten fingers. Um, um, he makes this a core part of Elvish culture right, down to making one of the only things he tells us about elvish childhood. Like, not what adult elves or parents think about their children, right? He's talked about that, some in the whole time of the children stuff, right? Uh, You know, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the marriage, you know, the laws uh, and customs among the Eldar stuff. Um, But, um, but very rarely do we get anything about what the children do and how the children play. But this stuff about the fingers and the naming of the fingers is one of the only things that we get, and it's all connected with the counting, right? So he makes that fundamental. And yet, the elves deliberately deviated from that, right? Deliberately deviated from that. Um, he, uh, he decided that they left it behind because they found counting in sixes and 12s the more congenial apparently for elaborate for more elaborate reckonings right they would still sometimes use decimal terms they would still sometimes refer to fives and tens in daily use right but when they're going to sit down to do real math when they're going to calculate numbers of significance they're going to do it in base 12 because it's more convenient mathematically right And that's a fascinating piece of world building to build there, right? Um, Yeah, be honest that's exactly the thing that I think is so cool about that. Um, That elves seem to be more open to questioning the way things have always been done. And that's not obvious that they would be, right? I mean, it would be easy to think that immortal creatures like that might get kind of stuck in their ways, right? I mean, because you know, it's one thing to speak to another human being and have that human being say, this is how we've always done things around here, right? But when an elf can tell you, this is how I've done things for the last 7,000 years, right? It's just, it's a little different um, than this is the custom that we've been doing, you know, at this, uh, you know, in this office for the last, you know, lo these seven years or something like that, right? Um, But, um uh, but anyway, I, I, I definitely think that, um, uh, that's a very, that, that's the thing that I found most interesting about this, right? That, um, and not only that they were moving to like embracing new things in that way, but that he conceives of the elves moving from a concrete to an abstract system. That seems a poor way to explain it. It's, it's kind of more than that, but, um, but that seems kind of the essential of it, right? Um, they have the concrete system based on the counting on the, on their fingers, right? And... But they can appreciate... They are sufficiently invested in the life of the mind and in abstract thought that they find a different mathematical way better, easier, more convenient, more important in some way, more fitting uh, to the world around them, perhaps, in some way. Uh, and... Uh, so they shift to that and leave behind the more you know uh, concrete uh, basis um, uh, of uh, of 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 counting and I think that's really I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, anyway um, okay. Even more than the child play records themselves, I was fascinated by the very learned origins of the child play records that we have. The following account is an abbreviation of a curious document, preserved in the archives of Gondor by strange chance, or by many such chances, from the Elder Days, but in a copy apparently made in Numenor not long before its downfall, probably by or at the orders of Alendo himself when selecting such records as he could hope to store for the journey to Middle-earth. This one, no doubt, owed its selection and its copying first to Alendil's own love of the Eldarin tongues and of the works of the lore masters who wrote about their history, but also to the unusual contents of this disquisition in Quenya, Eldarinwe leperi are notesi, the elvish fingers and numerals. It is attributed by the copyist to Pengalov, or Quendingoldo, of Gondolin, and he describes the elvish play names of the fingers as used by and taught to children. Oh, wait, but that's not enough, right? Not only do we get this beautiful view uh, into Elendil's character, right? Um, <laughs> Elendil, the days of Numenor are coming to an end. What do you do? Right? How do you prepare for the end of Numenor? Well, Elendil... Prepares. We all know how his son prepares, right? It's true. His son prepares by boldly and heroically stealing a, you know, a fruit of uh, uh of the tree. Um, but um, of course, we also know that that same son spends his time bringing, uh, fetching his enormous pet rock to bring with him. Right. Um, yeah. There's this uh, there's this six foot diameter boulder that I would like to bring on board the ship, Dad. That's my contribution. Right. Um, the Stone of Erech, the origin story of the Stone of Erech uh, still boggles my mind. Um, but anyway, here's Alentil occupying himself rather differently. Right. Um, and how he occupies himself is to have a copy made. Or himself to sit down and make copies of records in order to make them more portable, to bring them to Middle-earth, right? What do I do in the last dwindling days of Numenor? I've got to copy all of as many old records as I possibly can in order to bring them with me to 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 Middle-earth from Numenor and to keep the memory of the old days alive, right? Um... So, yeah, here's this uh, here's this funny document describing the play names of the fingers as used by and taught to children, right? Yes, generations of, you know, Numenorean uh, offspring in exile yet to be will really need to know this, right? But, of course, what he's doing is preserving a snippet of the life of the Eldar in Middle-earth from the Elder Days, right? Recognizing this as something... Um, really important, really interesting, Um, you know, possibly unique. And I kind of love that, right? I kind of love that. And notice notice what this also kind of accomplishes. Um, It puts Elendil knowingly, that is Elendil himself knows that he is in, that he takes upon himself, the task which we see Aragorn taking on himself at the end of the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, it is his, he is the, the last of the elder kings, right? He's the last king of the, uh, you know he, he know, he knows he's the transition, right? He's the transition between, um, you know, the older ages and the age to come, the fourth age to come, right? And it's, it's his responsibility to keep alive the memory of the old days and see that they don't fail, right? We hear Aragorn talking about this. And of course you'll notice, Tolkien's done this before. If you remember our early uh, discussions way back in the old days when we were looking at, uh, what was it? Shaping of Middle-earth and the Lost Road. Um, When the character of Elrond was originally invented, this was his job, right? This was his job. Um, his job was to be that transitional figure, the one figure from the elder days, from the first age, who would survive into the era of men and keep alive the memory of those old days. This is also why Elrond, always, from the very beginning, was born very, very late. Right? He is a child of the first age um, and a child in the first age, right? but he doesn't play much part in the activities of the first age, that's not his job. He's not a hero of the first age, like his father, for instance, right? Or his grandfather or his grandmother, for that matter. Um, But he, um, but his role was to be like the heir of that, right? And to carry that into, uh, into the second age. And we can see this is what in the published Silmarillion why the published Silmarillion keeps coming back to Elrond um, at several kind of key points. Um, uh, So we now get, and we've had some reasons perhaps to think of Elendil this way before, but this is one of the most concrete uh, and explicit that I can think of. Of you know where he is positioning Elendil explicitly in that same role, um, he always kind of was that in some ways, right? But he's going to be bringing to Middle earth the memory, um, not only of Numenor but even memory of the elder days, uh, that have passed. Because although there remain elves in Middle earth, people like Gilgoad, who you'd think could play that role as well, not to mention Elrond, who's still around, right, doing his thing as lore master, um, and yet. Elendil is the one who is at the beginning of the third age, looking back on the second age and working actively, as we see here, with pen in hand, to make sure that the second age is not forgotten. The second age of Numenor is not forgotten in the land that comes. And I think that that's really um, that's re- that that that's really cool. And Ilana, yeah, I like that theory that. Um, uh, I like that theory that um, uh, the king's men were uh, likely destroying documents written in Elvish. Yeah, I like what his... Um, he's not just taking books, he's copying things, right? And it does suggest maybe maybe he's doing something similar to what Isildur did, right? When Isildur went in and stole the fruit from the tree. Um, are we to imagine, perhaps... Elendil sneaking into the King's Library and copying things out of the King's Library. Maybe even, don't tell anybody, stealing things out of the King's Library in order to preserve them, right? And before they can go through and cull the archives of uh, you know, any of those, um, uh, you know, uh, divisive Quenya writings, right, that might be lying around. Um, I think that's. Um, I like that. You know, I like this image. Um, of course, I like almost anything that Tolkien writes that gives us a glimpse into the story of Numenor, or I should say a story. We know the story of Numenor as far as big picture is concerned, right? But a glimpse of the people and life in Numenor. Um, so I think that that's pretty, uh, um, I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool there. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be too scandalous. Applying, you know, accusing Alendil of stealing books out of the library like that's a, it's a big deal. But um, anyway, but but we get more than this, right? Not only do we get that glimpse into Alendil, we also get uh, this reputed uh, footnote on Pengoloth Quendingoldo Quen Quendingoldo um, uh, Quendingoldo, right? That would be the ngoldo thing there because it's in the middle. Ilana? Anyway, sorry, I'm trying to learn how to pronounce that. Okay, reputed to be the greatest of the OC. Now, hang on, the tilde there. Lambengolmor? Lambengolmor? Is it the G or what does the tilde mean in that context? Lambengolmor? Is is that trying to tell me to do the NG like an NG instead of doing lambengol like and like with a hard g um la- lambengol more is that how it should be yeah that ng mm. okay all right Th- thanks a lot i've been practicing alana again in her emails was having pity on me and trying to teach me how to pronounce that tilde at over the n at the beginning uh in uh noldor um uh, I've, I've been practicing. I've been trying to work on that. It's hard because we don't do that in English. Uh, the ng sound at the beginning of words or syllables. Lam Bengolmore. Lam Bengolmore. Um, so that would be a hard G in this case. Okay. All right. All right. Um, getting there. <laughs> Sorry, you guys aren't aren't here to listen to me practice pronunci- pronouncing. But okay. Uh, so that word, of course, means linguistic lore masters, which is pretty awesome. And, I, Alana, I agree. You should put that in your email uh, uh, signature. Uh, before I would totally put it on my business cards if I were you. Uh, before the end of the elder days. So... <laughs> In trying to pronounce the word, I've totally lost the meaning of the sentence. He is reputed to be the greatest of the Lombeng linguistic lore masters before the end of the Elder Days, both by talent and opportunity, since he himself had known Quenya, Vanyarin, and Noldorin, and Telerin, and preserved in a memory remarkable even among the Eldar, the works, especially on etymology, of the earlier lore masters, including Fanor, but also had as an exile been able to learn Sindarin in its varieties and Nandarin, and had some acquaintance with Kuzdul in its archaic form as used in the habitations of the dwarves in Arid Linden. So talk about opportunity, right? Talent meeting opportunity. Oh my goodness, Pengaloth, right? Not only was one of the greatest linguists in Eldarin history um, uh, having... Uh, you know, a memory remarkable even among the Eldar, but the opportunities that he had, right? He learned Vanyarin, Noldorin, and Telerin in Valinor, right? Um, and then came to Middle-earth and learned Sindarin and Nandarin and even Kozdul, right? He is the ultimate storehouse and repository of, uh, you know first-age languages, uh, and so therefore is the greatest of the uh before the end of the Elder Days. Um, that's, um, that's pretty awesome. Um, that's pretty awesome. Um, and he was the guy <laughs> who wrote... So Elendil comes across this treatise on the elvish fingers and numerals uh written by Pengaloth and is like, oh we have to have it, right? We had this 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 has to be pre- preserved. Um and so through the industry uh of uh of Elendil we have this this thing uh this thing pre- preserved. Um pretty awesome I think. Um yeah yeah. Um... (laughs) Cecilia's telling me to learn to pronounce Gilgalad and Manway correctly, and I'll be making a huge stride. Yeah, well, you know, Cecilia. Um... Let's not hold our breaths. Um... (laughs) Hey, what can I say? Um... There are some things, Cecilia, I can't unlearn. I just... I can't. I can't. Um... Yep. Hey, look, I've made progress. Like, when I was a kid, just reading this, uh, you know, on my own in the mountains of West Virginia, I, I mean, I used to say, I used to say Maglin and Maedhros. Like, you know, uh, it was only later that I learned my errors about those things. And I've corrected many of them. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, as uh, Bjarne Sunder points out, Pengaloth's name even means something like knower of speech yeah he's um he is the linguist character. I mean if if there's uh, if there's any Pengaloth is like um, um what's that um, what's that trope called in fan fiction when you uh, when you write a character in who's basically a fantasy version of yourself, right? Um, what's that what's that what's that called? What that kind of a character you call a you call a Mary Sue. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Pengawath is like Tolkien's Mary Sue. Um uh this kind of fantasy version of himself that he's written in uh to his own stories in a way to like fulfill his own dreams and fantasies. That's totally Pengawath. Right? I mean no question, no question. Um Uh yeah, yeah. Um Absolutely. Um, Okay. Let's keep going. Let's talk about hair. Let's talk about hair. Ingwe had curling golden hair. Finwe and Muriel had long dark hair. So had Feanor and all the Noldor, save by intermarriage, which did not often take place between clans, except among the chieftains, and then only after settlement in Amman. Only Finway's second son by Indus had fair hair, and this remained generally characteristic of his descendants, notably Finrod. Elwë and Olway had very pale hair, almost white. Melian was dark, and so was Luthien. Um, okay. All right. Um, here we get things spelled out, right? You will off, uh,. I, this most of this is not new. None of this is shocking. Um, there are other places where we have heard him talk about this kind of thing, but it's interesting to see this spelled out. And there's one really interesting conclusion um, that I um, uh, that I think is important here. Um, that Ingwe had golden hair. We've already heard in other places, right? Uh, that is in other places here in this. Book. We don't often hear much about Ingwe, but we remember we got that little description of Ingwe earlier on that kind of busted out in the middle of, uh, of one of his genealogical segments, which is why, worth reading, even if you're not into the math, um, we know that Finway and, and Muriel had long dark hair, right? And so that almost all of the Noldor are, have dark hair, right? There's almost no blonde Noldor, with the exception of Finarfin's children. Because Finwë's second son by Indus, Finarfin, had you know was blonde, had fair hair. Um, as was true of his descendants, and of course we get that's where Galadriel uh, gets her hair color from. But of course we can also see why is it that Elwë and Olwë should have very pale hair, almost white. Can you see why that should be? It's uh, totally Galadriel's fault right? Galadriel's hair is like silver and gold. Um, uh, it's this, like, Galadriel's hair is supposed to be very, very remarkable, right? Um, and it's supposed to be like the light of of uh, Laurelin and Telperian mingling, right? I mean, it's it's got like uh, gold and silver elements. So there you go. That has to come from somewhere, right? And of course, Galadriel's mom is always daughter. So there we go. Right. He doesn't spell that one out. Um, but I, I think it's, it seems to me pretty clear why Elwe and Olway should have very pale hair, almost white. I blame Galadriel. Um, and, um, uh, but also notice the consequences of this. Luthien has dark hair, black hair. It's like shadow, um, compared with shadow. Um, She gets her hair color from her mom. Million, uh, Million had, had dark hair. This, I think, is very important. And if we get very far along in my slides tonight, we will come back to this point. If we do not, remind me about Million's hair next week. I'll probably remember, but if I don't, um, remind me at the relevant moment. Um, yeah. myar genes do seem to be dominant, apparently, Arthur. Um, which I would say is important on account of apparently myar having genes. Um, but again, more on that later. I just wanted to note, Luthien gets her hair color from her mom. That's important. I hold that that is important. Um, okay. Okay beards. Let's talk about beards. A note was sent to Patricia Finney uh, December 9th of 72. So, the year before Tolkien's death, right? This is, this is uh, near the very end of his writing career. His career <laughs> total, right? Um, in fact, less than a year. What is that? Nine or 11 months, rather, before his death? This He wrote this? answering a question about beards that mentioned some of the male characters, which she and a friend did not imagine as having beards. Um, And first of all, I love how much more this woman gets than she was asking for. I don't know what the actual tone of Patricia Finney's letter was, but it sounds like she's, you know... It sounds like a fairly typical kind of fan conversation, right? Like, um, I don't know how many times I have been called upon, like, over Twitter to arbitrate between two friends' debates, which I hate doing, by the way. I'm like, someone's going to hate me no matter what I say. But um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's an invidious position to be placed in. Uh, tell us which one is right. Um, but anyway, she and her friend were saying, like, we're, you know, discussing which of the male characters in The Lord of the Rings do and do not have beards. Um, again, which, as I say, this, this sounds like a question I've been asked, you know, the kinds of questions I get asked all the time. And um, I, okay. First of all, a footnote, my footnote, to the beginning of this. Notice again, and I've said this many times before, notice what this demonstrates, right? It does not say in the text whether or not Aragorn has a beard. Scour the Lord of the Rings from beginning to end, and I do not think that we find evidence of the question whether or not Aragorn has a beard. Or Denethor. Or Boromir. Or any of them. Right? Or Aemir. Do they have beards? Do they not have beards? We might assume they do, but there are some examples where we get references to beards. Um, But Tolkien just does not give us much at all in the way of physical descriptions. So, okay. Um, His answer. I replied that I myself imagined Aragorn, Denethor, Imrahil, Boromir, Faramir as beardless. This, I said, I supposed not to be due to any custom of shaving, but a racial characteristic. None of the Eldar had any beards. And this was a general racial characteristic of all elves in my world. Any element of an elvish strain in human ancestry was very dominant and lasting, receding only slowly, as might be seen in Numenorians of royal descent in the matter of longevity also. The tribes of men from whom the Numenorians were descended were normal, and, hel- and hence the majority of them would have beards. But the royal house was half elven. Having two strains of Elvish race in their ancestry through Luthien of Doriath, royal Sindarin, and Idril of Gondolin, royal Noldorin, the effects were long-lasting. E.g., in a tendency to a stature a little above the average, to a greater though steadily decreasing longevity. <laughs> footnote: Can 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 show the math if you're interested. End footnote. And probably most lastingly in beardlessness. Thus, none of the Numenorian chieftains of descent from Elros, whether kings or not, would be bearded. It is stated that Elendil was descended from Silmarion, a royal princess. Hence, Aragorn and all his ancestors were beardless. Okay, again, uh, much more then I have to assume Patricia Finney <laughs> uh, I, of uh, august memory was looking for. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Elvish descent. Now this opens an obvious question, right? Cirden? What, 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 why does, Kierdan has a beard, explicitly. Kierdan is explicitly bearded uh, in The Return of the King when we meet him. Well, he doesn't answer that just now, though I think we can see the answer to that already, right? Based on the ability that elves have to be able to influence their roar, right? Um, he um, he wanted a beard. Though apparently he had one. But anyway, we'll see. Anyhow, um, yeah, it's a racial characteristic. That beardlessness is one of the most lingering Most lastingly, probably most lastingly, in beardlessness. Um, So all of those Gondorian folks, Aragorn, Denethor, Imrahil, Boromir, and Faramir, all beardless. Aragorn is especially beardless, right? But even Denethor, Boromir, and Faramir, though their Numenorean descent... um, was not as direct from Elendo, right, as Aragorn's was, yet nevertheless, they were descended originally from the royal house. Um, And so therefore, they are beardless. Imrahil, of course, is beardless uh, for a um, totally different reason. Right? Well, no. Same reason, but different lineage. Um, It's because of the elven blood in his line, right, which is not the same as the the line of the kings. So it's just kind of a coincidence that all of those noble Gondorian folks are beardless. Um, you know, one of the things that I really kind of like about this, I don't know that Tolkien intended this, but of course, shaving. He um, he swears off shaving. It's nobody was shaving, right? Um, n- nobody in the Lord of the Rings was shaving um shaving wasn't a thing that was done um, people know who invented shaving why was shaving done who made shaving you guys know who made shaving a thing right um I mean, it's a it's, it's a kind of an interesting uh, it's kind a uh, kind of interesting historical tidbit um uh the romans made shaving a thing it was it was it was the romans who i'm not saying they invented like no one had ever shaved before um but it was it was the Romans who were beardless on purpose, right? Who 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 shaved, um, and made that a major thing. Um, and it was my understanding is that it was primarily a military thing. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, um, he doesn't have um, he doesn't have anybody like following in that. They're just like they're just naturally. Like, it's almost like the Romans were like wannabes, right? Modeling themselves after the old beardless, uh, uh, you know, noble lines of old, right, which are have now dwindled from the world. Uh, and I, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of like that. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, I, I think that um, yeah, Heather and uh, Ilana both. That was the other element here that I was really interested in in this passage the phrase, my world, my world. Um, no hobbits don't have beards. They don't have beards either. Um, almost no hobbit has almost any beard. Um, some of the, uh, what is it? The Harfoots, I think get a little, get a little, little beard action going on, but not, but not much, just a little, just a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he explains, no, hobbits don't have beards. But it's not because they're necessarily descended from elves. Who knows? Why are hobbits short in the first place? Who knows? Um, <laughs> foot beards? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, um, but anyway, my world. I don't know. I don't remember. Is it the stores that have a little bit of beard? I couldn't remember if it was the stores of the Harfoots. Um, I can't remember ever talking, using that phrase. Modern authors talk like that all the time, right? Um, you know, talk to anybody who's written a fantasy novel, and they'll always talk about my world, right? Um, uh, I mean, goodness, even I have done that. And all I invented was a, uh, a role playing campaign <laughs> for my sons. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, uh, but Tolkien almost never talks like that. That's not Tolkien's language. Usually. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of any other time I've ever seen Tolkien do that. Talk about my world. Now he does put it in quotation marks, right? He does kind of distance himself from that idea that he has a world. Um, but I, I I think about um, I think about the the issue. Um uh yeah. Oh there you go. Thank you, Stephen, yeah it is the stores. Um, anyway. I think about that issue of Tolkien's world. And the relationship to the real world, right? We talked about this in Morgoth's Ring, you know, how I was telling, you know, saying I would have loved to say to Tolkien, just let it go, man, right? Let that connection go. Let it be your world, like let it be a fantasy world. It's okay to set it alongside our world by your own doctrines, right? And on fairy stories, it's okay to have that be a separate world set alongside um, uh, our world so i 'm fascinated to see near the very end eleven months before him death his him death, his death, him using the phrase "my world right, even in quotation marks and ilana i I, I agree with you um, uh, I agree with you that um, she's saying, I love the combination of creative self knowledge in my world and scholarship in it is stated that right. Yeah. he st- he, he doesn't get away from that. Right. Um, he, uh, he still writes as if he's citing external authorities. Right. That's how it works. Right. Um, and this is how we always answered questions. I love his letters where he's answering questions from, you know, from readers and fans. Um, because this is always how he answers, he almost never says, here's what I meant, or, you know, here's what I really think, or um, here's the the real inside scoop. Instead, what he does is a close reading of his text and then logical conjecture based explicitly upon his analysis of what the stated text actually says, right? Um, uh, Like he's doing scholarship, on this external thing rather than um, just, you know, making stuff up as he goes along. I think that's, um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, Morfindio is asking, what do I suppose having or not having a beard really signifies? I don't know that it signifies coarseness. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, differentness, for sure. I, I do think differentness. Um one thing that would seem to me to be almost inevitably connected with beardlessness in the context of a society in which almost all men were bearded would be youth. I mean, it is the young men who are not bearded, right? Um, uh, I mean, you can hear this in uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, right? When the Green Knight accuses Arthur's court of being a bunch of beardless boys, um you know you guys are so young and immature that you have not even grown your beards in yet right that seems to be generally the uh, the kind of association with beardlessness and so i would i would think i would think that um uh, i would think that um at first glance at the very least beardlessness would be associated with um, youth, immaturity, um, maybe even uh, you know foolishness or or, or, or whatever else. Um, but but obviously that's going to take on a different aspect within this within the context of Gondorian culture for sure, and probably even of Rohirric culture as well. But that primary thing would be, I think difference it would it would be difference um, uh, they're not like the rest of us right um, there is something just different about them that's obvious that can't be hidden right I mean you can see it you don't have to hear them speak you don't have to know anything about them right um, think of that um, think of that scene in the Lord of the Rings movies, right? When Aragorn is revealing to Eowyn his age, right? His actually, you know, that he's actually over 90. Um, And she finally has that moment where she's like, you must be one of the, one of those Numenorean folks, right? Well, in this case, all you have to do is see him across a room and you'd be like, whoa, look, it's one of those Numenorean dudes, right? Um, And that's a huge... Difference. It's a huge difference, right? Um, it's it is. There's a huge difference between those two things. Um, where no, no no one would know. Where it could be concealed, right? This is a this is a difference that can't be um, that can't be concealed, and that I think is really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's um. Uh, let's keep going. Here's a little digression in the midst of the discussion of beards, and I love this. This is like Tolkien world-building at its best, right, um, when he does it in digressions and gets carried away talking about other things, right? I did not but could have noted the following points. <laughs> Can I just say I'm also glad he spared poor Patricia What's-Her-Name uh, <laughs> this whole explanation, which is no doubt what much more than she was looking for. I did not but could have noted the following points. The kings of Gondor had no doubt had stewards from an early time, but these were only minor officials charged with supervision of the king's halls, houses, and lands, but the appointment of Hurin of Emon Arnon, a man of high Numenorean race, was different. He was evidently the chief officer under the crown, prime counselor of the king, and at appointment endowed with the right to assume vice-regal status and assist in determining the choice of heir to the throne if this became vacant in his time. These functions all of his descendants inherited. It may also be noted that they had Quenya names, which had long been a privilege only of those of proved royal descent. So the beardlessness of Denethor, Boromir, and Faramir sparks this whole digression on how the stewardship came to be what it was, right? And we get this uh this 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 moment, right? Um It was not just a steady evolution, a steady change in the duties, right? It happened at this one particular time, at the appointment of Hurin of Eminarnin, right? A man of high Numenorean race. And when he was put into the role, everything changed. It's almost like a a premonition of the loss of the line of the kings that was to come not too long afterwards. Um, That's... uh, um, I think that's, I think that's, Devorah, this has to do with beards because of the beardlessness of the stewards. Why are the stewards beardless? Especially if they're descended from stewards, which are servants, essentially, right? Ah, because Huron of Emenarnin was a man of high Numenorean race and hence beardless, right? Ah, Because of high Numenorean race. And this would explain why Denethor, Boromir, and uh, uh, Faramir have no beards, right? Oh, but wait! There's more. We get now a digression from the digression, which gets even better. Notably, Hurin is not one of those names. He's just said they had Quenya names, right? And I don't know about you, but I was sitting here saying, hang on, I don't know much Quenya, but I don't think Hurin is a Quenya name. Um, didn't he just say they had Quenya names? Like, it was noted that they had Quenya names. And I'm like, hang on a second. And a bunch of them don't have Quenya names, the, the, the stewards, Right. What do you mean by that? Okay, but of course he's going to explain notably. Hurin is not one of these names. But being an origin, the name of the most renowned in the legend of in legend of the house of Hador from whom the male side from whom on the male side the kings were descended it was reckoned of equal worth. Why after Mardil varonwe the Quenya names were abandoned is not clear. Oh, wait, so they had Quenya names? But then they stopped having Quenya names just in time for the genealogy to come in, right? So he has this whole genealogy full of non-Quenya names and then he's like, oh yeah, it was also noted that the stewards had Quenya names. Except, you know, after the first one, they didn't, right? Um, So this explains why Mardil Varunwe had a Quenya name, right? Um, But, um, okay. right, fine. Um... uh, But, so he's going to explain this. Okay. Why after Mardo varonwe the Quenya names were abandoned is not clear. But it was probably simply a part of the ritual humility of the ruling stewards. Like their never sitting on the throne, having no crown or scepter, and banner without device. It was because, uh, sorry, uh, and holding office only in the name of the king until he shall return. I say ritual because it was impossible that any king should return unless he were a descendant of Elendil from Isildur, not Anarion, because the line of Anarion was gone. But from, but from Pelendur onwards, the ruling stewards were determined not to receive any such claimant, but to remain supreme rulers of Gondor. Whoa, we're getting a new story now here. It may anyway be observed that though Quenya names were not used, those used were probably all the names of renowned heroes in the royal lines of old as recorded in legend some may come from tales now lost but húrin túrin hádor barahir dior denethor oradreth Echthelion, eäglamuf and Beren are all are from legends recorded um I love it when, again, just these kinds of explanations, which almost always end up spinning off into new stories and things that we didn't know already before, right? And when he's doing this about Lord of the Rings stuff, it's especially cool. Um, so you see the thing that we learned there? Um, which is really, really neat. From Pelendor onwards, the ruling stewards were determined not to receive any such claimant. It's not just that the stewards... Um, it's not just that the stewards um, were—I had given up hope that the king would ever return, right? But they were determined. It was—it was for for many generations. Um, forgetting how many, somebody look it up for me. How many generations from Denethor back to Pelendor how many uh, how many how many how many generations past Octelian his dad was uh, was Palendur? Anyway, but for multiple generations, it has now been part of the steward culture. That so this explains Denethor's words, right? Um uh, The last of a ragged line long bereft of lordship, right? That's The line of Isildur. Right, don't talk to me about the line of Isildur. Twelve! Twelve generations? Twelve generations. For real? I didn't think it was that many. Holy cow. That's a long time! That is a long time! My goodness! Wait, how many generations from Mardil to Pelendor? From Mardil the steward, the head of the line of hereditary stewards, um... Two? You're kidding me. I totally didn't look this up. Palendor was Mardil's grandson? Good grief. That's amazing. That is amazing. Wait, hang on a second. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um. Anyway. You see how that changes the story? Holy cow! That changes the story. Yes. The stewards on the one hand, as he's explained, are deliberately what's the what's the phrase? Um ritual humility, right? The ritual humility of the ruling stewards never sitting on the throne, having no crown or scepter, banner without device, holding office only in name of the king until he shall return. But they didn't mean it for Thousands of years, hundreds of years, anyway, right? Probably going on a thousand years, I bet you. Since they meant it, right? Um, in the I, I, I hold office in the name of the king until he shall return. Parentheses, and I shall see to it that he never shall. Right? Um, man, that's uh, that's. That really puts the Gondorian decline into, uh, uh, into perspective. And it also calls into question the lack of Quenya names. They didn't use the Quenya names, but they did name themselves after old human heroes. Do you see how... Um, um, do you see how they... He's characterizing the stewards as very much in the Numenorean way, right? This recapitulation of the fall of Numenor and the king's men, um, not taking the throne in, in, you know, in, the, in, in a, in a Quenya name anymore, right? Um, and instead elevating the human. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, we see, we're invited to see in Appendix A, we are invited to see the history of Gondor in the Third Age as imitating the rise and fall of Numenor and we see direct parallels being established the elaborate tombs, right the um, uh, you know, contemplating their mortality Uh, Faramir's speech makes it clear that he sees the parallel to Numenor, right? Um, But Appendix A also kind of invites us to imagine that the stewards were different. Um, But he does not. So notice the collateral... I was going to say collateral damage, but it's not only damage. Notice the corollary of this little digression here, right? Um, This little um, indictment that he's making here of the line of most of the line of the stewards. And that's... um. It makes Denethor more understandable. And it makes Faramir more awesome. Right? When Faramir... um, What did he learn as wizard's pupil exactly? Right? Well, one of the things that he seems to have learned is... To break from the corrupting family tradition, right? Um, To adhere to the old ways. This makes Faramir a sort of parallel, not quite a parallel to Tar Pelantir, but almost like Elendil himself. Almost like, you know, we can see in Faramir this, um, uh, you know, return to the old ways like we can see in Tar-Pelantir, uh, the last faithful king of Numenor who tried to turn back the clock, um, um, but also resistance, right? Um, his going against his father's, what he knew his father's will would be, and correctly, right? Um, when he lets uh, Frodo go in Athelion, there's almost something of the, you know, uh, rebellion of Amandil and Elendil against the king, right or even of Isildur's breaking in and stealing the last fruit I mean something like that right is something kind of parallel to that is happening when Faramir does what he knows will displease his father and indeed does in fact displease his father um very interesting very interesting um Yeah, Michael says, I'd always taken Denethor's refusal as a sign of his fall, not a symptom of his upbringing. I agree. I, I, on the one hand, Michael, I was talking about collateral damage because my first thought was of Denethor. And it does kind of lower... If Denethor is just, you know, following the thousand-year tradition of his house, his, um, his fall is a little bit less personal, a little bit less interesting in that way, right? Um, So, I do think it lessens Denethor just a bit. But if the collateral effect of that is to make Faramir more awesome, I'll take it. I'll take it. I don't think Michael, it's as simple in any case as saying he's just a product of his upbringing. Um, It might help us to understand a little bit more where he's coming from and why he would think this is not just him gone... Wild, right? Him gone crazy. Um, uh, and in some ways, Michael, it might make Denethor's story more, um, uh, I don't know, simple. Um, Denethor has a bunch of faults in the book, right? Two, especially pride and despair, as Gandalf accuses him of, right? Um, And he's very guilty of both, both pride and despair. Well, if the pride he had, uh, if the pride he had from his family, right, from the custom, it's not that he is not culpable for any, uh, you know, pride of his own. He certainly would be, um, but it kind of places that pride into context, right? The despair is still his. Right. And so the thing that I think is most important about Denethor's fall um, would still it doesn't like completely undermine it, doesn't totally change it. Um, But it does give him make it a little easier to understand why he would have that pride in the first place, why he would why he would like, why would the steward of Gondor, the last of this line of humble stewards just waiting for the king to return? Say that. Think that. I mean, that's it's a it's that element of it is less huge a fall, but then the despair is still there. So, for me, that still kind of works, but um, anyway, okay. Let's keep going. So, um, moving on from Beards and to character descriptions, closely related, right? Um, Here we get some descriptions of character, and how about that? In the story, he was one of the immortals, This is Gandalf, of course. In the story, he was one of the Immortals, an emissary of the Valar. His visible form was therefore a guise in which he walked among the peoples of Middle-earth. Footnote. We'll talk about this later. A cloak for his power, wisdom, and compassion. But his body was not a phantom. It was corporeal and could suffer and be hurt. Thank you, Tolkien. Again, (laughs) I'll talk about Gandalf's body more later on. I'm going to come back to this. Um, but his body was not a phantom. It was corporeal and could suffer and be hurt. And though more slowly than mortal men, he aged and was at the time of the story white-haired and bent with care and labor. He had then been wandering the Grey Pilgrim, mostly on foot through all the Westlands for some 2,000 years. Yeah, that'll, um... I don't You know, turn your hair white and... uh bend you with care and labor a little bit. His looks and his manners had touches of the comic or grotesque, especially to hobbit eyes, reflecting the sense of humor of a fundamentally humble spirit. Reflecting the sense of humor of a fundamentally humble spirit. By the way, can I just love the fact that, um, can I I just say how much I love the fact that when Tolkien is giving a physical description of Gandalf, he, he leads with things like um, his uh, his manners reflected the sense of humor of a fundamentally humble spirit. That doesn't help all that much. <laughs> like if this is if this is physical description, he's doing it wrong. Right? Uh, I love it. I love it. But um, I, I guess I would just say. Notice how much Tolkien seems to, like, not, like, it's just uncongenial to him to physically describe people. He doesn't want to give you a description of them. Um, And you know what I think is also interesting, come to think of it? I've sometimes said that I think that Tolkien's imagination was fundamentally... That in some ways, at least as far as his imagination was concerned, I think that actually his primary medium as an artist was um, was paint. Um, I think that he imagined things as a painter even more than he imagined things as a writer. Um, And that a lot of what we see in his prose style is him trying to capture in words what his mind has been picturing. Like a painter pictures a scene. That's why we get all that landscape description. It's my own theory anyway. Um... uh, And you can see, I think this comes across very clearly, especially in those places where we are lucky enough to have both. That is, have a physical description that he's given in words of a place and also have a a landscape painting that he's made of that same view. And I think it's pretty clear that um, the one is kind of derived from the other, right? Um, uh, And I, I think it's the picture that comes first. Um, And the, uh, it was the history of the Lord of the Rings hearing him um, work out some of these things that really kind of convinced me of that, especially the pictures that he drew in the margins. Um, But anyway, Uh, okay. But, oh yeah. But to finish that thought, although his, you might think, why would somebody who has the imagination of a visual artist, of a painter, have such a very hard time describing characters, or be so reluctant um uh to draw char- you know, to to, to to describe characters. Surely he sees them in his mind, and you can tell that he does see them in his mind. Um but of course, he also doesn't do portraits. In his own paintings, I mean. Did he do any portraits? I'm trying to think through his paintings that I've seen or seen representations of. Did he do any portraits? Like, actual portraits. Just close-up, head and shoulders of a mortal figure. Um, if he did any, I don't, um, if he he did any, I, I can't remember them. But if he did any, there are not very many. For sure. Um, but um yeah he has landscapes which have characters in them but usually that inclusion is only um kind of accidental yeah bilbo on the barrel right in the uh, when the, the 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 painting that he does of the barrels uh floating down towards lake town um uh you get the uh Bilbo sitting there in the Eyrie of the eagle, right? Looking out over that. So he's a little down in the corner. Um, you see, of course, invisible Bilbo in the Conversations with Smaug painting. Um, um, but um, yeah, you do get Father Christmas. It's not quite a portrait, but at least the painting of like Father, like the one that's just Father Christmas walking with the with the the bag of presents on his back, one of the very first images uh, in um, um, in Father Christmas letters, yeah, yeah. Now there is uh, Mister Bliss too. Oh, let's see, I can reach Mister Bliss. Mister Bliss does not have many portraits in it, though. It doesn't have any portraits. Lots of action shots, like. Um, let me make sure I, I do this properly. Um, yeah, I'm finding my bliss right over here, Mister Bliss, driving his motor car into a wagon full of cabbages and knocking the dude down and the cabbages flying. Right, um, lots of action shots of that kind, um, and the teddy bears. But again, mostly, um, mostly they are uh, um, they're kind of pictures like that. But yeah, none. None of those are are actual portraits. Like, again, where the whole purpose of drawing it is like, I want to capture a person, right? He never seemed to try to... he He did some pictures, some landscapes that involved people, right? And even some illustrations of active moments, right? But he never tried to capture a person by painting their face. Right. Or, you know, their their portrait. Um, But um, uh, anyway, so. um, And I I don't think it's an accident and I I'm tempted to connect it with. I mean, it's like looking at how this description he's going to get around to it. Right. But let's actually read the rest of it. Okay. His looks and his manners had touches of the comic or grotesque, especially to Hobbit eyes, reflecting the sense of humor of a fundamentally humble spirit. Even the rare glimpses that he gave to those whom he specially loved of the founts of hope and mirth that lay beneath were touched with it. A figure strongly built with broad shoulders, though shorter than the average of men, and now stooped with age, leaning on a thick, rough-cut staff as he trudged along at the side of Aragorn. Gandalf's hat was wide-brimmed, a shady hat with a he is he, going to quote from the text right even to support uh his descriptions with a pointed conical crown and it was blue. He wore a long gray cloak but this would not reach much below his knees. It was of an elven silver-gray hue though tarnished by wear as is evident from the general use of gray in the book. Okay. So um uh um we do get a little bit of physical detail. Broad shoulders. Shorter than average. Stooped. Then we get his hat. We get his cloak. Right? Um, And we get how long his cloak is. Uh, It doesn't reach much below his knees. Um, (laughs) That's not much of a physical description. Right? Um... What's his nose look like again? Like, um, what would a what would a uh, like police department sketch artist do with this, right? I mean, it's like, okay, uh, can you describe this wizard, you know, that, that you encountered, right? I'm imagining like Grima, you know, reporting to a local police sketch artist and being like, well. Um, his manners reflected the sense of humor of a fundamentally humble spirit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, draw that. Draw that. Um, oh, and uh, sometimes he gave rare glimpses uh, of the founts of hope and mirth that lay beneath. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that, that, that sometimes happened, too. Uh, oh, he had broad shoulders, also. Um, yeah. And I had a, and a hat. A pointy blue hat. Yeah, yeah that was it. Um, I mean, I mean, that's it. That's all we get. I think he's he seems to me very pointedly reticent, even in this moment when he's supposed to be describing. Like he's going out of his way to describe what Gandalf looked like, and he 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 like won't do it. (laughs) Like he can't do it. Um, um, He doesn't give us these kinds of these kinds of details. Um, uh, Yeah. um, I, I. Defora, I agree. I'd never imagine Gandalf is short either. Um, uh, Shorter than the average of men is fascinating, right? Looking especially short at the side of Aragorn, one would imagine, right? Um, Yeah, I just, I think we, to me, the most fascinating thing about this description, apart from those footnotes that I mentioned that we'll talk about later, um, are the (laughs) lack of details, we get here uh, the lack of an attempt to, of of any real description. What, um, what uh, color his eyes? We still don't know, right? Um, and I have no doubt that when at ease in a house, he wore light blue stockings and shoes. Now that's a detail I like, right? Okay, so we know more about Gandalf's sartorial habits, um. When at ease in a house, he wore light blue stockings and shoes. So uh, what you didn't know that Gandalf had in common with Mr. Rogers, right? That when he goes into a house, he apparently <laughs> whips out his light blue stockings and shoes. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. I love it. I love it. Um, uh. <laughs> okay. Okay. He was the friend of a friend and confidant of all living creatures of goodwill he differed from radagast and saruman in that he never turned aside from his appointed mission i was the enemy of sauron and was unsparing of himself radagast was fond of beasts and birds and found them easier to deal with he did not become proud and domineering but neglectful and easygoing and he had very little to do with elves or men although obviously resistance to sauron had to be sought chiefly in their cooperation But since he remained of good will, though he had not much courage, his work in fact helped Gandalf at crucial moments. Though it is clear that Gandalf, with greater insight and compassion, had in fact more knowledge of birds and beasts than Radagast, and was regarded by them with more respect and affection. This contrast is already to be seen in The Hobbit. Bjorn, a lover of animals, but also of gardens and flowers, thought Radagast a good enough fellow, but evidently Not very effective. Um, True, though, um, Bjorn is rather sparing of his praise. But um, uh, I agree, Arthur, we should not even talk about movie Radagast here. That's right out of court. But, of course, the important thing to remember here is the comments about Radagast in the essay on the Astari when he, Gandalf, when Tolkien says that Radagast failed, Right? But he tells us almost nothing about that. Um, uh, very little, anyway. About, like, wherein did Radagast's failure consist? And he adds to that here in, I think, interesting ways. Right, He did not fail like Saruman. Right? He did not become proud and domineering. He went a different way. Right? Um, neglectful... It became neglectful and easygoing. His neglect of elves and men was where you can see the problem, right? Um, Because if resistance to Sauron was his job, that had to be sought chiefly in the cooperation of elves or men. Um, There's a limit to how helpful the birds and the beasts are going to be in the overthrow of Sauron or even in the resistance to Sauron, right? Um, But he still, he remained of goodwill, though he had not much courage. He doesn't put himself forward, Right? but he did remain of goodwill. So, uh, Radagast may have failed, but he did not... uh, um, He may have failed, but he did not become corrupted, exactly. He just didn't follow through, right? Um, So you can say he failed, but still not in the same category as Saruman, of course. Um, And that addition at the end that Gandalf had, in fact, more knowledge of birds and beasts than Radagast. Um, I, that's um, uh, really interesting. Really interesting, right? And was regarded by them with more respect and affection. Even the birds and beasts like Gandalf better than they like Radagast, even though Radagast is focused just on them, right? And I do agree, Chad, that... Um, saying he doesn't have much courage is clearly a uh, relative thing. Yeah, clearly a relative thing. Um, Relative to Gandalf, for sure. Um, I think we can see the lack of courage in Saruman as well. Um, We can see his lack of courage in part, I think, in his refusal uh, to heed Gandalf, when Gandalf invites him to come down, and we see him waver for a moment. One of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that I would say prevents Saruman's um, still doing what good he might do. It's pride. <clears throat> pride, for sure. But not only pride. Um, also, lack of courage, I think. Um, yeah. It's a fascinating touch. And that quote, I mean... He's right. Bjorn knows Radagast, has heard of him, but there is no evidence that he uh, thinks very highly of Radagast. Despite the fact that you'd think that Bjorn, if anybody would be on the side of a local wizard who was all about promoting the welfare of the birds and beasts, it would be, it would be Bjorn, right. Um, now it's true that he doesn't think all that much of Gandalf either, Edith, but he didn't know them all that well yet. Um, and, uh, um, and he, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we see him warming up to Gandalf, uh, as he gets to, and then of course Gandalf and Bilbo come back and, stay the winter with him. Bjorn, that is, at the end, right? Um, So, that relationship seems to flourish a little bit. Um, Yeah. Interesting. Um, I agree, if Radagast had killed more goblins, Bjorn probably would have thought higher of him, Stephen, I think that's right. Um, uh, Not much courage, right? Um, Yes. He, Radagast, never went out and killed the great goblin. Right. Um, yes. Okay. More. The Quendi were in origin a tall people. The Eldar were those who accepted the invitation of the Valar to remove from Middle-earth and set forth on the great march to the western shores of Middle-earth. They were in general the stronger and taller members of the Elvish folk at that time. In Eldarin tradition, it was said that even their women were seldom less than six feet in height. Their full-grown, uh, their full-grown elfmen, no less than six foot six, while some of the great kings and leaders were taller. The Numenorians before the downfall were a people of great stature and strength, the kings of men. Their full-grown men were commonly seven feet tall, especially in the royal and noble houses. In the north, where men of other kinds were fewer and their race remained purer, this stature remained more frequent. Elendil the Tall, leader of the Faithful who survived the downfall, was said to have surpassed seven feet, though his sons were not quite so tall. Aragorn, his direct descendant, in spite of the many intervening generations, must still have been a very tall and strong man with a great stride, hence his nickname in Bree. He was probably at least six foot six. Boromir, of High Numenorean lineage, would not be much shorter, say six foot four. Okay. Um, there you go. Boromir is six four. Aragorn is six six, which means, picture this now. Attempt to picture this. Gandalf has got to be more than a foot shorter than Aragorn. More than a foot. Sh- Arag. Gandalf's head comes up to somewhere in uh, Aragorn's chest, right? Maybe like a little above his sternum. Is where the top of Gandalf's head is, if Gandalf were standing in front of him. Yeah, no, I can't really. Not sure I can picture that. Um, I'm not sure I can picture that. Um, Yeah, now that's a really good point, um, uh, Karina Lars, Karina Lars' daughter. yeah, uh, are we to take Gandalf's shortness in comparison to these Numenorean giants? It can't be to the seven-foot average, right? So when he says, Gandalf's a little shorter than average, if the average was seven feet, right? So Gandalf was actually like 6'10"? No, no, I, I, it, it it can't be. Um, I have to imagine that Gandalf is shorter than average as men were in the Third Age, which is the only time that Gandalf was living, uh, you know, in the world, right? Um, by that time the descendants of pure Numenorian blood were quite few, um, and the average men were sh- certainly a good deal, um, um, a good deal uh, shorter than that. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it is, um, yeah, Elendil the Tall, somewhere north of seven feet, right? So Elendil the Tall... You got a picture, um, yeah, like Minute Bowl, basically. Yeah, that's how tall. But Elendil was probably a good deal broader. Uh, he probably weighed twice what Minute Bowl weighed. Um, uh, yeah, Elendil was enormous. Aragorn 6'6, Boromir 6'4. Legolas has to have been the third tallest member of the party. Gandalf was the fourth, it was almost middle. Like it's Aragorn, sorry, it's Gandalf and then Gimli <laughs> when you're going in decreasing order of height, right? If you line up the fellowship, right, by height, Gandalf and then, uh, Gandalf and then, uh, um, and then Gimli, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, that's, um, that's striking. Remember also, remember how Gandalf is described when we first meet him? That is in chapter one of The Hobbit? He's described as a little old man. It's the phrase. Um, So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how tall Bjorn was, but very tall, clearly. Um, I suspect Bjorn of being something like seven feet tall. Um, Thingol is taller. Thingol is taller. Um, we're told that full grown elfmen were no less than, like, six, six is the minimum, right? So Aragorn would have been just as tall as, like, your average Noldo back in the day. Um, but some of the great kings and leaders were taller. Thingol, we're told, is the tallest, right? Thingol has to have been. What pushing eight feet, pushing? I, I, you know, it's, it is possible, Edith, that Bjorn is just a, a completely bad data point because who knows, like Bjorn's parentage, right? Uh, um, it is possible, but but yeah, Thingol Thingol has to be, um, I think Thingol has to be at least, you know, seven six. Uh, he's got to be, he's got to be, uh, he's got to be up there, um, somewhere between seven foot and eight foot tall, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. More. These figures of the Fellowship are thus all too short. Gandalf, even bent, must have been at least five foot six. Five six. Even, sorry, now, stooped over, right? If he stood up taller, he said, five six! Gandalf, five six. A foot shorter than Aragorn, as I said. Legolas, at least six foot, probably more. Gimli is about the height that the Hobbits should have been. That is, he's describing the picture, right? That he's commenting on and complaining about. Um, but was probably somewhat taller. The Hobbits should have been between three three foot four and three foot six. I personally have always thought of Sam as the shortest, but the sturdiest in build of the four. Um, I love that, by the way. I agree. I also, too, have always thought of Sam as the shortest member of the party, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. But the sturdiest inbuilt. Sure. Absolutely. Um, notice by the way, Peter Jackson got this right. That is the relative height between hobbits and dwarves. The movie does that really well. They were fortunate that, um, John Reese davies was that much taller than the, f- and that the four actors playing the hobbits were all very similar, all of a very similar height. And, uh, John Rhys-Davies is naturally that much taller than they are, Um, so he didn't didn't have to mess around with uh, scaling uh, for any of them, Um, but he gets it right. The hobbits are between three foot four and three foot six, and the dwarves were about four feet high at least. Hobbits were lighter in build, but not much shorter. Their tallest men were four feet, but seldom taller, though nowadays their survivors are seldom three feet high. In the days of the story, they were taller, which means that they usually exceeded three feet, and qualified for the name halfling. But the name halfling must have originated circa third age 1150, getting on for 2,000 years before the War of the Ring, during which the dwindling of the Numenorians had shown itself in stature as well as in lifespan, so that it referred to a height of full-grown males of an average of, say, three foot five. Three foot five Times to six foot ten? Hmm. Okay. Um, okay. It referred to a height of full grown males? First of all, can I just say, see him doing it again? Math, I mean, right? Now he's taking the word halfling. And he's using the word halfling. He's trying to use the word halfling as an index, right? Um. <laughs> I can't imagine that that's how it went down, right? Uh, that when humans first met hobbits back in third age, 1150, they they got out their measuring lines and were like, yep, they're exactly half the height of man, of human man, right? Uh so, uh, it's a good thing, because if you guys were a little bit taller, we would have had to call you, you know, five eighthlings, right? But since, since you're right on the nose, we're just going to go with halfling, right? Uh, we were going to be more, you know, we, we toyed with the idea of calling you, you know, seven seven eighth, seven sixteenthlings and you over there more of a five sixteenthling, but, uh, but, uh, wh- whatever, we'll just round it out, right? And call it halfling. Um... <laughs> I think that's um, uh, adorable <laughs> I think that's adorable. Um that he uh <laughs> right quick to the long division. <laughs> exactly. This this idea that like before they used the word halfling, they made careful calculations and did like a demographic survey, right? And uh and some you know some, some, some community averages and they did plenty of long division and decided yes. It is just to call them halflings, such that by use, by use of the word, the fact that they use the word halflings, footnote, and also knowing how tremendously precise they were in their mathematical calculations, and footnote, uh, and imaginary footnote, therefore, we can now know, you know, how tall the dudes must have been. Um, I just, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um... I think that's, that's so much fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's all I want to say about that. Um, maybe one of them was using metric and forgot to convert. It's possible. It's possible. Okay, I think we'll end with this. Um, This is a fascinating example. We've seen lots of times when Tolkien is using his established text as unalterable facts. Very few occasions in which he goes so far as to suggest there really has to have been a scribal error here, right? Um, When trying to answer the question... What does Gollum look like? What color is Gollum's skin, actually, right? He goes right to all of those passages that Lord of the Rings readers forget about in The Hobbit um, and that Peter Jackson ignored, right? Which was, at his first mention, Hobbit, page 83, he was dark as darkness. That, of course, means no more than that he could not be seen with ordinary eyes in the Black Cavern. Except for his own large luminous eyes, so he's explaining that away. Yeah, when he said in you know when it says in the Hobbit that he was dark as darkness, that just means he was hard to see in the dark, obviously, right? Doesn't mean his skin was black. Similarly, the dark shape at night. Now here we're talking about the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, the dark shape that Frodo sees at night um, on the Ayat in the river, I think is what we're referring to there. But again, it was dark, right? So it was a dark shape in the darkness. Doesn't prove anything. But that does not apply to the black crawling shape where he was in moonlight. When Sam and Frodo see him crawling down the face of the cliff in the bright moonlight, and he is called in that description a black crawling shape. How do you explain that? Professor Tolkien. Answer. Gollum was never naked. He had a pocket in which he kept the ring. He evidently had black garments. Quoting that passage, the black crawling shape, he evidently had black garments. And in the eagle passage, um, remember the one where it says, uh, like, if an eagle had been looking down at them, you know, hiding... Um, uh, he might have looked twice at he wouldn't have noticed the hobbits at all. He might have looked twice at Gollum and then said, no flesh worth, worth a peck. Right. That's the that's the the passage that he's talking about there. Um, In the Eagle Passage, where it is said that from far above, as he lay on the ground, he would look like the famished skeleton of some child of men, its ragged garment still clinging to it its long arms and legs almost bone-white and bone-thin. His skin was white, no doubt with a pallor increased by dwelling long in the dark, and later by hunger. He remained a human being, not an animal or a mere bogey, even if deformed in mind and body, an object of disgust but also of pity, to the deep-sighted such as Frodo had become. There is no need to wonder how he came by clothes or replaced them any consideration of the tale will show that he had plenty of opportunities by theft or charity as of the wood elves throughout his life. Um, Gollum is not dark as darkness. Gollum is white-skinned, no doubt with a pallor increased by dwelling long in the dark. So, is he contradicting? Is this retconning? Yeah, I think so. I actually do think that in The Hobbit, Tolkien pictured Gollum as black-skinned. I do. Um, first of all, think of how thematically that fits with all of the black beasts in Mirkwood, right? The whole... Um, it's part of the whole like light-dark thing that goes on in The Hobbit, right? Um, Gollum having been you know, under the influence of evil and living in the shadows doesn't become pale like uh, something, like we see things in caves tending to be white, right? Um, but instead he becomes dark like the things in Mirkwood become dark. Um, but it is clear he does explicitly point out it's uh, arms and long long arms and legs almost bone white and bone thin, almost bone white and bone thin, Um, we have what I think is not a contradiction, but a deliberate change. And this seems to me to fit perfectly well with um, the change in the story kind, right, between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. In The Hobbit, he's writing a fairy tale, right? And so the idea that you've got this dark creature living in the darkness, Gollum is like a piece of the darkness come alive, right? Um, He is, um, Gollum belongs in that cave on that dark lake, right? In the middle, down at the roots of the mountain. Um, He's part of that world, right? And so, of course, he's dark. What else would he be, right? Um, Tolkien is not thinking in terms of, like, he was a, like a human hobbit-ish creature who wanders in and lives there for a long time and becomes twisted and corrupted and, and therefore his skin would become pallid from living out of the sun like you would. Right. Um, that's not how he's thinking about Gollum in the Hobbit, but it is how he's thinking about Gollum from the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, right. From the very start when in the shadows of the past, Gandalf is telling Frodo the story of Gollum, right. Um, now he's conceiving Gollum quite differently, and so yeah, he's gonna have—he's uh, gonna have light skin, which has become bone white as well as bone thin um, through his corruption and his time underground. Um, but um... so is it a contradiction? Yeah, but it's not an accidental contradiction. He's not forgotten. He's just. He's now writing in a different mode. It's one of the things, but it's a very low-key thing that he has apparently decided. It just didn't fit. It didn't fit in The Lord of the Rings. Um, We're not telling that kind of... He's not just going to be a shadow monster anymore. Um, He's got a history and a story which necessitates that. He would have had bone-white skin from living underground for 500 years. Um, So, yeah... um, that's really cool retconning. Um, notice all of the evidence for this comes from the text, right? Um, and it's fascinating because he quotes the darkest Darkness passage from The Hobbit. But then he kind of brushes that off, right? Yeah, it was in the darkness, whatever, right? Um... That does not apply to the black-crawling shape where he was in the moonlight, right? So he points out the biggest piece of evidence against what he's trying to explain, and then he explains it. He was a black... He's wearing dark clothes, because, of course, like, he's trying to keep a low profile. Gum sneaking around, right? Sneaking over, sneaking away and sneaking... That's what he does. He's a sneak, right? So, of course, he's going to wear dark-colored clothes, and he's not naked, He's got pockets and stuff he's wearing clothes of course he's wearing clothes why shouldn't he wear clothes he's had lots of opportunities to have clothes and replace his clothes right even if his original clothes of 500 years ago have rotted away he's had lots of opportunities to clothe himself since he emerged and he would have done so in large part so he can sneak around at night more effectively right um very interesting okay I'm going to let you guys go. Let's, uh, let's keep going for next time. I, I want to, um, we're going to, we're going to talk about mind pictures. We didn't quite get to the passage where I wanted you to remind me about Million's hair, but we're going to, we're going to get there. Um, let's, let's go through. Oh, golly. Do I dare assign the fate and free will chapter? Oh. Well, let's do it. Why not? Let's go through chapter 11. Through chapter 11 for next time. I do not suspect we are going to complete a discussion of the fate and free will chapter by next time. But maybe we can get through the mind picture stuff. Um, the mind picture and telepathy stuff for next time. Um, so let's read through chapter 11 and we'll see how we do. Um uh, for uh, for next week. Thanks, everybody. Don't forget about Mythgard Miscellany. Um, and, of course, Mythmoot, um, uh, if you're thinking about a presentation for this year, um, our early bird pricing for Mythmoot is extended through January, so there's still time uh, to sign up for Mythmoot at a discounted price. Uh, we'd love to have you guys at Mythmoot. We'd be great to meet you and talk with you there um, and to hear some presentations, whether virtual or uh, physical uh, attendance. Um, all are possible, and as I say, don't forget about Mythgard Miscellany. We'd love to see. Uh, there's lots of discussions and and uh, things I'm sure that have come from um, you know ideas and arguments and things that have come from our discussions. Uh, we'd love to see some of that stuff in Mythgard Miscellany. So, thanks very much. I will talk to you guys soon. Bye now.